Hope you picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes as uh, you were coming in today. Um, we are literally coming down the uh, home stretch uh, in our study of the New Testament book of Philippians. And today uh, we look at Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 5. Now as we begin, uh, we need to remind ourselves of the answers uh, to two key questions uh, concerning the Philippian church. What was the Philippian church up against? And then in light of that, what was the church's greatest need? And the answer to both of those questions um, are found in the overview of Philippians 4 there at the beginning of your sermon notes, and this is review. Fear of persecution was threatening to stop the advance of the gospel. Uh, false teachers were attempting to distort the gospel and disharmony, disharmony within the church was damaging the credibility of the gospel. So the great need of the church was to stand firm in the Lord, uh, to stand firm in relationship to the persecution, uh, not to retreat but to continue to advance the gospel to stand firm on the truth against the error of the false teachers, and to stand firm united, uh, not splintering apart as a church, uh, but knowing God keeping them together for His honor and for His glory. Now, in chapter 4, as you see there, the Apostle Paul shares seven ways, seven ways uh, for the church to stand firm. In previous messages, uh, we have looked at the first two ways for the church to stand firm. Uh, Paul's first exhortation, as you see in your notes, again this is review, is to stand firm through harmony in the church. This is where he addresses the issue of disharmony, disunity. And the key phrase is found in verse 2. He says, live in harmony in the Lord. And the key truth could be summed up this way. Uh, from God's perspective, uh, more important than the issue in dispute, and this would be true in any church, is learning Christ-like character and maintaining a harmonious spirit or attitude toward one another. In other words, learning to disagree without becoming disagreeable. Uh, Paul's second exhortation is to stand firm. Uh, through joy in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And this was a great need because the church was suffering. They were suffering persecution. And it was very, very painful. And Paul knew that it would be in the joy of the Lord that they would find their strength. So the key truth there was the best of joy can be found in the worst of circumstances when joy is rooted in enjoying my relationship with Christ who is in control of everything and uh, for my good and His glory. And I believe the most important takeaway from the last message was how to experience joy according to the book of Philippians, which is one of the key themes, if not the key theme, in the entire book of Philippians. And we looked at four truths last Sunday. First, joy comes from surrendering my circumstances to exalt the life of Christ. God doesn't want me to give a lot of energy to trying to obtain a certain outcome 
uh, when adversity strikes. He wants me to leave the outcome to Him. That's surrender. Relinquishing my life to God. Giving Him the freedom to arrange the circumstances of my life in the way that He deems best. So instead of focusing on outcome, I'm to put my focus on how can I utilize these present circumstances, as difficult as they may be, as an opportunity to put Christ on display, to exalt Him. Second truth was joy comes from surrendering my relationships to extend the love of Christ, to realize that every single person God brings into my life is a gift from God. Even those very irregular, difficult people that I struggle with, they are a gift giving me the opportunity to learn to love like Christ loved. And then third, joy comes from surrendering my heart to enjoy the worship of Christ. Joy is found only when Jesus is my first love. Only when Jesus is my greatest passion and pursuit. When I leave that divided heart and I develop that single mind, that single heart, that single devotion towards Jesus. And then fourth, joy comes from surrendering my weakness to express the strength of Christ. My greatest weakness is God's greatest opportunity uh, to demonstrate His power. Now today, we come to the third way for the church to stand firm. And that is to stand firm through graciousness towards others. To stand firm through graciousness toward others. And this especially relates to the persecution they were experiencing. How are they to respond? How are they to relate to those who are persecuting them? To those who are opposing the Christian faith in their culture, in their community. And Philippians 4, 5 reads, Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now look at the introduction. As Christians, what are we to be primarily known for? Well, this verse answers that question. Not for our blessings, not for our gifts, abilities, ministries, or accomplishments, but for Christ-like character. And specifically, a forbearing or gentle spirit toward others, and especially those who oppose us. I'll read that again. As Christians, what are we to be primarily known for? What is to distinguish us? To set us apart? And it's not our blessings, it's not our gifts, our abilities, ministries, or accomplishments. All those things are realities, and it's part of the Christian life. But primarily, what should distinguish us, what should set us apart, is our Christ-like character. And again, specifically, as we see here in this verse, a forbearing or a gentle spirit towards those who oppose us. Now listen, beloved. Anything that calls itself a success in Christian ministry, but does not produce Christ-like character, is the epitome of deception. Anything in Christianity that calls itself a success, but it doesn't produce Christ-like character, is the epitome of deception. For the Christian, success is becoming more like Jesus. 
And there is no greater challenge, there is no greater opportunity to demonstrate Christ-like character than to express a forbearing spirit towards those who oppose you. As a matter of fact, they just talked about surrender. What we're going to talk about this morning is probably the greatest test of true surrender, at the same time the greatest opportunity to express absolute surrender to God. Look in your notes at the definition for a forbearing, gentle spirit. And to be very honest with you, the, the word that's used in the Greek text is a very difficult word to translate into the English because it's so full of meaning. You, you literally can't translate it word for word because it is so pregnant with meaning. But let me just, I hope this captures the heart of what we're being exhorted to express. A forbearing general spirit could be defined as the, as the humble graciousness that produces the patience to endure injustice, ridicule, and mistreatment without retaliation or bitterness and instead expresses love to the offender. That's what a forbearing gentle spirit is. The humble graciousness that produces, and of course going to have to be the Holy Spirit that produces this within us, the patience to endure injustice, ridicule and mistreatment without retaliation or bitterness and instead expresses love to the offender. The greatest example probably in the entire Bible of a forbearing gentle spirit is found in 1 Peter chapter 2 and I'd like you to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 2 I want us to look at verses 18 through 24, where we are exhorted to display this forbearing spirit, and that our exhortation is built on the example that has been left for us by our own Lord and Savior, own Master, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, let me begin at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. In our day, we might say, uh, Employees, be submissive to your employer. Or, or your, you soldiers, be submissive uh, to those who are your authority over you. It's, it's again dealing with this matter of uh, the authorities that exist over us. And it says we're to be submissive uh, to your masters. Notice, with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Maybe I need to read that one more time. Say, is that really in the Bible? Servants, be submissive to your masters. Employees, be submissive to your employer. With all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Why? Verse 19, for this finds favor, favor with God. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And then here's the marvelous example of Jesus. 
For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting, or you might want to put there, surrendering himself to him who judges righteously. And he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. I think we would all confess this morning that what I just read does not come uh, naturally to us. <laughs> uh, therefore, it's obvious, blatantly obvious, that we desperately need to become more and more like Jesus, uh, to learn His character and how to display that character, and especially to those who oppose us. Now, how does God produce Christ-like character in us. I mean, how does God take us who naturally are very selfish and it's all about our rights and what we want, how, how, how does He produce a forbearing, gentle spirit? He produces it through brokenness. Brokenness. And you say, well, well what is brokenness? You know, I've, I've, I've heard that term used in in Christian circles. And let me just try to define it very simply for you. Brokenness is, is the process, and it is a process, a lifelong process. It is the process by which God shatters your self-centeredness. He crushes, shatters your self-reliance in order to create in you a submissive, and pliable spirit by which then he can easily mold you into the image of Christ. God is the potter and we are what? The clay. And, and brokenness is the process by which God makes us the clay pliable in his hands so that he can mold us into the likeness of Christ. And one of God's, listen to this now, one of God's favorite tools to affect brokenness in our lives is opposition from others. God will often allow His child to be wronged. He will allow you to become deeply hurt through some injustice or slander or mistreatment. He will allow you to suffer persecution for your faith. Why? To empty you of selfishness and bitterness and then to fill you with the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And, and beloved, this is why when you study church history, the church has never been pure or more powerful than in times of persecution. And the reason for that is God uses that persecution 
to bring brokenness, to decentralize self, to get us to that place of absolute surrender where it is not about outcome, but all about exalting Jesus, where we become pliable and moldable in His hands. So, let me ask you a very pertinent question. How do you respond when you're wounded? Do you bleed bitterness or love? Well, look at your notes. And let's finish up by looking at how to be gracious when wrong. Now, as we walk through these five steps, they are very important steps. But of course, I believe we all realize in this process we're totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit that lives within the believer to create this change. But as we've emphasized so often, even through this study of Philippians, growth is a reciprocal process. God is at work in our lives. He has made every provision for us to walk in His grace, to walk in His love. But we have to appropriate that. And we appropriate that by stepping out in faith and obeying God. And as we obey God, and, and this is a very important thing what I'm about to say next. When we obey God, even when we do not feel like it, that's one of our greatest ways to demonstrate, Lord, I'm surrendered, I'm trusting you. And that, that, then that just brings that brokenness, it brings that pliability, where then God can step in, and as we obey, He even changes the emotions and the feelings and the attitudes, the inner life. So it's, a, it's a, again, that reciprocal process. So look at the first point. And this is where it has to begin when you're wronged by someone. Remove any personal guilt by repentance and restitution. Remove any personal guilt by repentance and restitution. In other words, in other words, can you honestly say when you're when you've been wronged by that individual, when you're wrong, that you are totally innocent in the matter. I mean just totally innocent, that you're free from all guilt, that your words, attitude and response was was totally consistent with being a Christian. Now that often is the case. Again, I don't want to try to uh, uh, communicate that uh, we never become true victims, where we are truly innocent, and we are being wrong for no other reason than we are walking with Jesus. But let's also be honest that many, many times when we are wrong, when someone attacks us, uh, God's trying to use that uh, to point out some things in our lives that need to be corrected. Uh, because what's, what's typically our response? You know, uh, somebody wrongs me, and, and, and I make a statement like I've just made. Well, well, the first thing we need to do is examine ourselves, make sure that we're innocent. But, but, but Brother Andy, he started it. I, I didn't ask who started it. 
I ask, are you free from all guilt, from all wrong? But, but, but Brother Andy, he carries most of the guilt, the burden of the guilt. Well, I didn't ask who carries the greatest guilt. I asked, do you carry any guilt for which you need to repent? When, here's, my, here's my, when you suffer wrong, here's the first prayer you need to pray. And it's there for you in your notes. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 23. This should be, you need to ask God and you need to develop as a habit in your life. When someone opposes you, when wrong comes, mistreatment, injustice, whatever it might be, this is your first response to pray this prayer. Search me. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Now here's a great quote by Amy Carmichael. Listen carefully. A cup full of sweet water cannot spill even one drop of bitter water however suddenly jolted. I'll read that again. A cup full of sweet water cannot spill even one drop of bitter water, however suddenly jolted. What's the point? Well, it's a very hard truth that we need to face. Being wronged or being wounded and being wounded deeply does not turn a sweet person into a bitter person. The wrong, the hurt, only revealed what was on the inside all of the time. You hear what I just said? When you're wrong, when somebody hurts you, that wrong, that hurt, it doesn't take you, a sweet person, make you a bitter person. It reveals what was on the inside all along. And that's why I'm saying that God often uses opposition. He often uses wrongs and hurts as a tool to bring brokenness to His children, to reveal the self-centeredness, to reveal the right, you know, that we just focus on our rights, wanting our way. And he's trying to bring us to that place of total surrender where we become pliable in his hands. So the first step, the very first step in being gracious when wrong is to acknowledge, if, if this is true, if I'm struggling with bitterness, it's to acknowledge that the problem's not with the other person. The problem is with me, that that bitterness is rooted in a selfish heart. And so I come to God and I just simply acknowledge that. God, thank you, thank you that you're using this to draw me to you. Thank you that you're using this to expose my selfishness, my, 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 my hardness. And, and so, Lord, I, you know, I, I don't want to resist you in this. I don't want to fight you in this. Lord, I want to surrender. I want to learn the lesson that you have for me. I want to learn Christ-like character. So, Lord, here I am, fully, totally surrendered to you to learn whatever lesson you have for me. Look at the second point, and this is a marvelous one. Realize that no one can injure me spiritually. 
unless I allow it to cause a wrong reaction in my spirit. No one, no one, absolutely no one can injure you spiritually unless you allow it to cause a wrong reaction in your spirit. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry. Don't be afraid of their threats. Instead, you worship Christ as Lord of your life. Amen? When you suffer wrong, here's the simple point. When you suffer wrong and are hurt by another person, you are suddenly confronted with a crisis of faith. It just comes down to this. You're suddenly confronted with a crisis of faith. And your reaction to the wrong, how you react to the, heart, to the hurt, will determine whether you're going to be blessed or whether you're going to be burned. You can put your faith in God, believing His promise that all things do truly work together for the good of His child, that He really is in control of everything, and, and He's going to use this for my good. You, you, can, you can choose to believe that. And then, embrace, and then embrace the suffering as an opportunity for growth and be blessed. Or you can choose not to believe God. You can embrace the bitterness and be burned. Now listen, the incident, whatever, whatever, whatever the wrong or the hurt was, it's going to pass. It will eventually pass, but your reaction will leave an indelible impression that will stay with you forever. You cannot control what other people do to you. But by God's grace, you can control your reaction and your attitude. And you can be guaranteed that God will hold your offender accountable. Folks, there's a payday someday. There's a day coming when God will right every wrong. That's why he said the Lord is near. He is returning. So don't think that the person mistreating you, the person hurting you, the person that's inflicted the wrong is going to get off scot-free. God may be using this for your good, but there's going to be an accountability. There will be judgment one day for that individual. But at the, same, at the same time, God's never going to allow you to use your offender's wrong as an excuse for bitterness. Therefore, the most important issue in life is not what happens to you, but how do you respond to it? How do you react to it? And this is why Alexander McLaren, the great Bible teacher, wrote, the only real calamity in life is to lose one's faith in God. And that's true. And that's really is what is the root of bitterness. I've given up faith in God. I really don't believe that He's in control. That he causes all things to work for my good. So I succumb to the bitterness. Romans 12, 21, not in your sermon notes. It reads, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by what? Doing good. By doing good. Will bitterness conquer you or will you conquer bitterness? The choice is yours alone. 
No one can injure you spiritually unless you call, allow it to cause a wrong reaction in your spirit. And so what is the point of the application? You are responsible to God for every reaction, for every attitude you have. Therefore, are you willing to stop making excuses, confess your bitterness as sin, and as first, the First Peter passage says, worship Christ as Lord of your life. Surrender to Him, submit to Him to learn the lesson He has for you. Look at the third point. Regard the offender, regard the offender, whoever created the offense, whoever created the wrong, the hurt, as God's tool in your life to accomplish God's purpose. Regard the offender as God's tool to accomplish God's purpose in your life. And a great illustration of this is Joseph's life. Now my time is going very, very quickly, so I, I can't linger here. Most of you are very familiar with Joseph's life in the book of Genesis. And what's the overriding theme in Joseph's life? God's ability to take gross injustice perpetrated against one of his children and eventually work it for that child's good. You remember Joseph's brothers came this close to literally killing him, murdering him, if it had not been for Reuben's intervention. And although he intervened and stopped the murder, he then was complicit with his brothers as they sold him into slavery. And you remember he ended up in Egypt. He was a slave in Potiphar's household. So on top of the wrong that, that was committed to him by his brothers that sent him into a life of slavery, he gets into slavery and then he's falsely accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife. And then he gets thrown in prison. And it's our understanding from the scriptures, probably from the time that Joseph was thrown in prison, or from the time he was sold into slavery by his brothers. From the time he was sold into slavery by, to that time where, you remember, eventually God, what? Took him, brought him out of that prison, elevated him to that position like prime minister of Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh. And then God used them to, to, to deliver the nation from, uh, from a great famine. And not only deliver them, but as we're going to see, deliver his own, his own family. And that was God's purpose in all of this. But 13 long, long, long years of suffering and pain and most of those years in prison because of nothing he had done. His brother's injustice, Potiphar and Potiphar's wife's injustice. And you remember he's eventually reunited with his brothers. And I wish we had more time. It's just an intriguing story if you're not real familiar with it. And look at Genesis 45.8. This is what he says to his brothers. He says, so it was God who sent me here, not you. What's he saying there? He's saying, I realize that God was even overruling your evil and your wrong and the hurt you inflicted upon me. God ultimately was in control and He was using you as a tool to get me where He needed me to be. And then look at this incredible statement that He makes in Genesis 15. And just for you to understand the background, you remember after they're reunited, Joseph brings his brothers and all their families to Egypt to care for them along with Daddy Jacob. 
Jacob was the daddy. And in Genesis 50, Jacob dies. Daddy dies. So now Joseph's brothers, their immediate reaction is, now that daddy's dead, our necks are on the chopping block. We're as good as dead. Joseph is going to have us executed. The only reason he kept us alive was because of his love for daddy. And he knew it would break daddy's heart if he slaughtered us. And so Jacob's brothers literally go running to Joseph. They throw themselves on the ground and they begin to plead for mercy. Oh, Joseph, have mercy. Have mercy on us. Don't take our lives. And here's, the, here's Joseph's response. What a response. Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? In other words, you recognize it's not my place to get revenge, retaliation. God is the judge. You intended to harm me. Yes, you did. You intended to harm me. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Folks, that's a forbearing, gentle spirit. A man, as a result of great brokenness and suffering, became pliable in the hands of God, and in that surrender, developed a gracious patience that refused to take his own revenge when he had the power to get that revenge, but instead to express love toward those who had inflicted the hurt. And, of course, Joseph's testimony is probably one of the greatest examples in all the Bible of what? Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called to His purpose because He's predestined us to become conformed to the image of His Son. In simple terms, we, and we've alluded to it several times in the study of Philippians, it's just saying because God loves you. If you're God's child, it's saying He loves you so much He's not going to let anything touch your life. He, nothing he's going to let touch your life unless he knows ultimately he can use it for your good to make you more like Christ and for his greater glory. So that third point, you need to regard the offender, the one who inflicted the pain on your life as God's tool to accomplish God's purpose. Look at the fourth truth. Respond in a positive attitude toward the offense rather than react in a negative attitude toward the offender. Respond in a positive attitude toward the offense, rather than react in a negative attitude toward the offender. In other words, this is where we're getting down to where the rubber meets the road, and where you have to step out in obedience and trust God, even when you don't initially feel like it. Look at Luke 6, 27 and 28. I say, love your enemies. You love those who oppose you. You love those who mistreat you, who persecute you for your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how do I love them? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. In other words, you have somebody that hates you, believer. He says you're to do good to them. You have someone who's slandering you with their mouth. You're to bless them with your mouth. You have someone who's abused you, mistreated you. Get on your knees and pray for them. Jesus always put love in very concrete terms. You're either practicing it or you're not. You're either doing it or you're not. It's never this gushy-gushy emotion, sentimentality, feeling type thing. It doesn't ever begin there. Because in reality, 
Who wants to do good to those who hate them? Who wants to bless those who curse them or pray for those who hurt? But as we obey God, as we say, I am surrendered to you, pleasing you is more important than anything else in my life. So although I'm perplexed, I'm hurting, I don't understand, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to step out in obedience and I'm going to do good to that person who hates me. Or I'm going to bless with my mouth that person who has slandered me. Or I'm going to pray for that individual who has hurt me. And then look at the fifth point. Recognize bitterness is assuming a right I do not have, I do not ever have. While forgiveness is a responsibility I always have. Recognize bitterness is assuming a right I do not have, while forgiveness is a responsibility I always have. Colossians 3.13 Make allowance for each other's faults, and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And what is forgiveness? And you've heard me share this many times from this pulpit, but it always bears repeating uh, three words. And you just write them down briefly. First word, release. That's where forgiveness begins. I release the right to hurt this person for hurting me. I release that person of the debt that I believe they now owe me because of the damage they've created to me. That's where all forgiveness begins. It's a release. Just like God released us of our debt, of the payment of sin, as Jesus incurred it for us, when we forgive, we release that individual that wrongs us of that debt we believe they owe us. We release ourselves of that right we wrongfully perceive we have to hurt them for hurting us. And then what's the second aspect of forgiveness? It's a promise. It's a promise that when, I, when, I, when you say, I, I forgive you for that wrong, or I forgive you for the hurt, you're saying, I'm not going to let what you did prevent me from trying to restore this relationship of building a bridge to you. Now, you may not be able. The Bible says, the Bible is very practical. It says, be at peace with all men as far as it is possible with you. Some people just will not reconcile. But what God is saying, you just be responsible to me, and when you forgive, you put yourself in a position where you're not going to let this offense in the past become a hindrance in trying to build a relationship with this individual going forward. And then the third word is investment. And we've already talked about that. You begin to invest in that individual by doing good to those who hate you, by praying for those who hurt you or blessing those. So, how to be gracious when wrong? Remove any personal guilt by repentance and restitution. Realize no one can injure you unless you... Uh, Cause, let it cause a wrong reaction in your spirit. Regard the offender as God's tool to accomplish God's purpose in your life. Respond in a positive attitude towards the offense rather than react in a negative attitude towards the offender. And recognize bitterness is assuming a right you do not have. While forgiveness is a responsibility you always have. So as we enter a time of invitation... Uh, I trust as believers, uh, if, I hope the one thing this message would do would take us deeper in our surrender to God, to see how desperate we are, how dependent we are upon God, that we can't affect this in our own strength in the flesh. This has to be a work of the Holy Spirit within us. But again, we need to reciprocate. We need to cooperate with God in that process. 
as we bow to Him, as we worship Him as Lord, and saying, because I do, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to step out, and I'm going to obey you in these things we've talked about, trusting that as I obey, as I step out in faith, I'm going to know the release of your power in a supernatural way, changing and transforming my life. And then if you're here and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, did you hear what we just talked about concerning forgiveness? That's what Jesus did for you. Jesus, through His death on the cross, He released you of the debt you owed God as a result of your sin, of your guilt. And He not only is willing to release you of that debt, He's willing to give you a promise. I will remember your sins no more. I'm not going to let your past sin come between me and you. I'm going to restore. I'm going to reconcile with you. And then investment. I'm going to take up residence in your heart. That's how deep my investment is going to be with you. I'm going to come live with you. And be that power in your life. So I would appeal to you, if you do not know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, put your trust in Him this day. To know that release of the debt of your sin. To know that promise that He'll remember your sin no more. That He'll truly forgive and that He'll take up residence in your heart. So you stand as the invitation is extended. And just be obedient to God. I'll be standing here to a welcome to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature. that I trust will all be responding in our hearts to what God has spoken.